Hello, listeners. Been wondering how you can help the show? Probably not. But here are five things you can do. One, subscribe. Support the show by clicking the subscription link in the show notes. Two, review on iTunes, on our website, www.afraidofnothingpodcast.com, or on whatever app you listen to. Three, donate. When you go to our website, click the cute coffee cup icon. Or, in the show notes, click the subscription link. Four, share. Sharing really is caring. Tell your friends, and even your enemies, to check out the show. Five, watch. Wait a minute, it's a podcast, not a movie. Actually, it's both. Check the show notes to find out where to watch the documentary. You can also rent it on Prime Video. That's it. Oh, one last thing. Enjoy this episode. Tonight's show is, well, different. It's all about Bitcoin. How is Bitcoin paranormal, you say? Well, like the paranormal, Bitcoin remains unexplained and mysterious for most of us who have no idea what it is and how it works. Even the person or persons who invented Bitcoin are unknown. So tonight, we lift the veil with documentary filmmaker Darcy Weir. Darcy has completed over 10 feature-length documentaries, which are all available through Tubi TV and Amazon Prime. He recently completed a new documentary based on the history of Bitcoin to date called The Bitcoin Field Guide, Understanding Cryptocurrency. Darcy's website is www.occultjourneys.com. Before we kickstart that conversation, a big shout-out to Andy Grant, who is a transformational energy coach and frequent guest on this show. Andy gave me a life activation, which is an amazing one-hour ceremony that eliminates the negative energy attached to you and infuses your body with white light. It's like a reboot to get your life back on track. Some of you may have known from prior episodes, I've been in the funk lately and the life activation had an immediate impact. We'll be covering that with Andy in a future show. In the meantime, visit his website at www.theandygrant.com. Now, let's talk Bitcoin. But remember, this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only. No information contained herein is intended or should be construed as investment advice. We're not recommending anything. Cryptocurrency investments are volatile and high-risk in nature. Always do your own research or talk to a reputable wealth manager or investment advisor before you invest. In a world where nothing is known, nothing is certain, reality is not real. Wake up! Be afraid of nothing. I'm Bob Heskey. Robert. The host with the ghost. This is my podcast, based on my paranormal documentary, Afraid of Nothing. Each episode, we talk to people who see life and the afterlife through a different lens. Join me. Who is this large man? And what's he doing in our bedroom? As we lift the veil and open our minds to see beyond our eyes lie. This is Afraid of Nothing. We are here with a great guest, filmmaker Darcy Weir. And a topic that may not sound paranormal, but is indeed unexplained and high strangeness. We're going to talk about Bitcoin tonight. And then later on at the end of the episode, we'll talk to Darcy about some of his other paranormal documentaries that are on Amazon Prime. But first things first, Darcy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me here. I'm really excited to talk with you today, Robert. It's a bit of a jump from some of your other films that I had seen. 
we'll talk about them later, but you do a lot of stuff on UFOs. You did one documentary called Being Taken, which is about abductions. You did another one called Humanoids. And you also do stuff about cryptids and stuff. But what got you into doing this documentary specifically on Bitcoin? I just follow my interests. I think there's a little bit of truth to every documentary that I've decided to profile and um, do a bit of investigative journalism into. And I think there's a lot of truth in the fact that the financial markets are really at the precipice of a very big change. I think that the way that you and I have experienced banking and services over the past 30 to 40 years has probably seemed like, you know, a great leap and jump in innovation in terms of everything going digital. But I think the greatest leap and jump is has yet to come. And that's the adoption worldwide to the masses of crypto. Because really, that market is just super, super small right now. To put that into perspective, the crypto markets is about only a trillion dollars internationally right now. And if you think about that, the gold market is nine trillion and the financial, the like investment, mutual funds, all that, that financial market is hundreds of trillions internationally, right? So when you start to see a lot of that money and that liquidity transition over to this crypto market, I think it's going to be the big change that uh, everybody's been waiting for in terms of having better value for their money, um, more instantaneous transactions when it comes to completing financial transactions internationally. Trade will change and just the way that people control their money will change because right now, you and I have been used to going to a bank and depositing our hard-earned fiat currency money that we've been paid by a company we work for or what have you every month. And that bank takes that money and holds it. And because they hold it for us, they charge us anywhere between a thousand bucks to say 2000 for the basic user per year in services. And then for advanced users, it goes up from that. They're also taking that money that you store there and they're actually leveraging it themselves. They're going and investing it and they're doing all these kind of sophisticated plays, which we've seen in the past not work out. And some banks become insolvent and close down, like in the last great financial crisis of 2008 which is right around the same time that Bitcoin got launched. It was actually created in protest to what happened in 2008 when the TARP bailouts came and all these banks were bailed out by the government given over $750 billion, which is nothing compared to what the last bailout was during COVID. It was about $4.5 trillion. And people saw that money basically go to CEOs and executives as bonus pay at the end of the year in 2009, and, and uh, it drove people crazy. So the designers of Bitcoin and this new crypto revolution are trying to decentralize finance, and they're trying to make it so that if you own a crypto wallet, if you own a digital wallet, you are your own bank, and those fees and those transactions and, and all that gambling that the traditional financial markets are doing with your money gets kind of owned and protected by yourself. So you really kind of set up what Bitcoin is. What it runs on is something called blockchain. I come from the financial services industry, and I know for the past four or five years, my company has been working on stuff or my prior company has been working on technology that runs on blockchain. So do you mind educating our audience a little bit about blockchain and how that that's kind of the guardrails that uh, a cryptocurrency runs on, correct? Yeah, it's um, a new technology that it's better encrypted and it's 
if it's designed well, like Bitcoin has been, it's really hard to hack. It's virtually impossible. People theorize that Bitcoin could be hacked by quantum computers. But if people don't know, quantum computers are in the same stage that the very first computers ever invented were at back in like the 19, I don't know, 1940s or something like that. They fill a whole room, they're super cooled, and they're hundreds of thousands of dollars to to own. And not everybody's using them yet, you know, developing with them and stuff. Additionally, there are companies that are building security to protect quantum hacking of the Bitcoin network. And that's the thing is blockchain technology, essentially, it chains transactions in a open ledger in in what you would consider kind of like a, a Excel spreadsheet to put it in somebody's mind. If you picture an Excel spreadsheet that's decentralized, that's that the Excel spreadsheet is connected by all these different nodes of computers running around the world. And once it's once it's uh, set in motion, the numbers can only be added to, they can never be manipulated or faked. So transactions are locked in a 256-bit hash encryption method. They're super secure and it's an open ledger. That's another thing meaning that you can actually track all the transactions historically and you can see them online. And people that were strong proponents against Bitcoin when it first launched, like uh, our friend Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, you know, the the big bank sort of guys, yeah. they would always say that Bitcoin was a illicit cryptocurrency that was anonymous, so criminals could get away with everything. But the funny thing is, all the transactions are completely trackable. That's what the whole term an open ledger stands for. Yeah, if you don't mind, I just want to interject so to help it with the audience. Imagine not just only a... Uh an Excel spreadsheet where each of the cells are the blocks in the blockchain and they're interconnected, but also like it's on Google Docs. So everybody is, it's very visible to the, to the world. It's not just the one manual spreadsheet that one guy in the company has and only he knows how to operate it. And you got to go to him to kind of get what you need. It's like open source and it's out there. And there's other questions I have regarding the algorithms that have to be processed and stuff. We'll go into that. But yeah, really, the, so the concept of it, I think what you're saying is, if I understand it, to parrot it back to you, is it is a, a next generation of kind of replacing the current fiat currency, which is really just a promise, uh, which people complain about Bitcoin, that it's not really tied to anything. You can almost say that the current paper-based system is really not tied to anything. Exactly. <laughs> it's based on trust, right? Yep. But it has these efficiencies in terms of of security and just the instantaneous transaction mm-hmm. and the lower cost fees mm-hmm. and the permanence of, of the of the record of the transactions like nothing can be can be wiped out yeah you can't you can't have fraudulent guys kind of cooking the books which accountants have been known for doing traditionally in in history on wall street forever you know and the government can technically cook the books. Everybody's talking about the inflation number being this, being that, and saying it's not true because they're just putting out the number they want to put out. They they don't want to they don't want people to panic if they actually knew that the real inflation number is somewhere around twelve percent, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the inflation number, the nine point one, it doesn't include gas or oil, right? Yeah. I don't think it, it's more consumables. So. Ex- exactly, and energy is the most expensive thing in the world, right? Yeah. If you look at food prices, the food price is affected by the energy price because just to get that food to the grocery store requires diesel. When it comes to trucks shipping all this stuff around the country or drayage by big boats going across the ocean, what have you. And then once it gets to the grocery store, you know, you also have to factor in yourself driving there, paying for gas and and all that. And then, of course, the farming cost, right? Like diesel is what runs most of these tractors and, and farming equipment, industrial farming equipment. So you need to pay for higher energy costs to harvest all this food. So 
it's crazy. Anyways, to go down the rabbit hole a bit further with Bitcoin and what it really is, it is something that will supplant the traditional banking system. So here's a really good analogy that I've been sort of explaining to people, to people that like from our generation that would actually grasp this a bit better. Remember when Napster came out? Yep. And that really shook up the music industry. Like Lars from Metallica was flipping out. He wasn't going to be getting millions of dollars for CDs and whatever we were selling in terms of music those days uh, at HMV and Sunrise Records or whatever. So the music industry started getting shaken up when that new technology came out and people could download digital music that was on par with the CDs and and DVDs and stuff that were selling all this media. And right now we're at that same place where basically finance is being digitized into a new technology. And Bitcoin is that technology. All you need, even you talk about Ethereum or these other cryptocurrencies, all you need is a digital wallet. And you could set one up in Chrome called MetaMask. Once you have that digital wallet, you can buy Bitcoin, you can buy Ethereum, whatever you want with your traditional fiat currency, and you can store it in your digital wallet locally. And then if you want to go pay for a service or pay for a product down the road, you're going to see integrations into retail sites like Walmart. Best Buy, you name it, like eBay. And advisors, advisors, money managers, which exist now, right? Yeah, they'll all take payment in crypto, not just fiat currency. And the reason why they'll do that is because people will have the infrastructure set up just like they have now with what started as something like Napster. Now you just, you can, instead of owning a whole closet full of CDs of music that cost you, I don't know, over the years, let's say $20,000 to pay for, you can pay $9.99 a month and have infinite music on Spotify that you can stream at will and build playlists, right? So innovation usually brings two things to the table. It brings efficiency and better value for the user. And the banking systems have been fighting that innovation. They've been trying to hate on blockchain and the innovation of Bitcoin because they see it as a threat. They know that if you set up a digital wallet, you don't maybe need to have their digital bank account to hold your fiat. You could convert all your fiat to a crypto and you could eventually down the road I mean, right now it's not integrated to everything, but I'm saying down the road, it will become like Spotify. You know, it'll be something that's commonly used five years from now. And the documentary was really just something to guide and educate people on, like the idea of what blockchain is, the idea of what Bitcoin is, what traditional fiat currencies are and where we came from in terms of transacting and how we considered using money for trade uh, historically. And then we go from that into what are all these other cryptocurrencies? What are smart contracts? What are What's decentralized finance? What are NFTs? What are these joke coins like Dogecoin and, and Shiba Inu and all that stuff, right? So it was kind of like giving people a, a tip of the iceberg so they understand this is a technological innovation and we're at this point in history where we're going to transition over from being kind of ripped off by the banks and not really knowing what they're doing with our money to going to this digital transition where we actually become our own bank and we can actually see and do more with our finances personally than if we just give it to the bank. I'm not saying the banking will go away, but they're going to see their market share fall. And they're going to have to, in my opinion, they're going to have to compete. They're going to have to stop attacking this new digital revolution. 
and they're going to have to start saying, okay, let's drop our fees. Let's offer a blockchain option, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And I, I just want to let the listeners know that we'll kind of be grazing across the top of it. If they want more of a deep dive, it's, it's actually in your documentary, The Bitcoin Field Guide, Understanding Cryptocurrency, which is on Amazon Prime and Tubi. Is it on anywhere else that you, right now, Darcy, or are those yeah, the two main it's, places? It's on um, iTunes, Apple TV, Vudu, uh, a whole bunch of different platforms. Google like, Play yeah, and Google all that Play, stuff. YouTube Red. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So you can see it everywhere, right? I've, I've, I told Darcy I've already I was watching it for the third time uh, before we were on the call because it, it does take a little bit getting your head around. So it's a, it's a new way of thinking, right? So it does get, take a little while to get your head around it. Darcy does a great job. He breaks it into six chapters. It's humorous in many places throughout it, so it kind of makes it easy to 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 follow along. One thing that's kind of cool is digital currency, but the first one was Bitcoin. It has an unknown author, right? There's a if you could tell that story because. What makes Bitcoin unique and mysterious is there's a, a whole question, unsolved mystery about who invented it. And, and uh, that's kind of the, the mix of the conspiracy theory behind it, if you would. You mm -hmm. know? So yeah. could you kind of tell that story for us and let us know the, the background? Yeah, totally. I think what's interesting about it, like I told you before, it was invented in protest to what happened when the banks got bailed out and then they kept the money for themselves during the great financial crisis of 2008, they kind of took that money. And instead of keeping people employed and saying, you know, we got a recession coming, here's the money we got from the government, you can keep your job. They fired tons of people and then they just kept that money and paid their execs bonuses, right? So you can actually see in the first line of code when they released Bitcoin into the wild, it actually has the date and sort of like a code giving a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the great financial crisis of 2008. So the developer, many people believe, was actually a, a gentleman from Arizona named Hal Finney. This is a man that was suffering from a terminal illness. He was a very intelligent cypher punk. And people, people have been experimenting with trying to build a better digital currency for many years. And I think this guy knew he was on his way out and he wanted to do one last thing before he passed that could change the world. So he released Bitcoin. That's the other interesting thing about Bitcoin is that it is truly autonomous. So it, it runs on its own programming. It doesn't have somebody that created it at the top, still residing over it and manipulating it or being greedy or changing it and maybe even stealing people's fun. None of that is possible. He set the code in motion. It now runs and people are going to upgrade the network, but you can't change the foundational code. Because the creator is no longer around, there's value in that. Like if you look at you know, a lot of people love Elon Musk, for example, and uh, he's got his haters too, but he's a fallible person and he's still around. So you go invest in Tesla, you go invest in Starlink, Neuralink or whatever, and you buy at the top and then he does some crazy dumb thing, gets high on acid and has another baby with somebody he works with. And all of a sudden the stock is crashing because you realize this guy's a megalomaniac and maybe has Asperger's. He has some great ideas that could change the world, but he's also a fallible human being. And so the beauty about Bitcoin is that it is this, it is something that is backed by demand. So that's really what it's backed by. And it has a limited supply. There's only 18 million that anybody will ever get in the world today. And that's why it's worth $22,600 as we speak per Bitcoin, because so many people have bought into it internationally. And really, it's backed by international currency demand. People want to own that instead of owning a bar of gold, which is precarious, which if you want to go pay for something, you're not going to be able to shave off a piece of your gold and be like, hey, I'd like to have a dozen eggs. Did you say 18 billion or 18 million or how many? What's the finite number? 
Only 18 million. Yeah, that's why it's worth so much because right now, 90% of the supply has been printed, has been minted. It will get harder and harder for it to mint more as the years go on, but it's going to mint for the next 30 to 50 years. Basically, each Bitcoin is divisible up to nine decimal places. So you don't have to have a full Bitcoin per se. If you have anything beyond the fraction point, but beyond zero, you're calling that a Satoshi. The smaller units of a Bitcoin are called Satoshis. And that's the cipher, the anonymous name for the creator that he called himself Satoshi Nakamoto online on chat forums when he was building this cryptocurrency. So Satoshis are the smaller units. And technically, you you own some Bitcoin in the future as more and more people get into it and start to adopt using that as a payment or a reserve currency that they'd rather hold than a fiat currency that's kind of like deteriorating as every month goes by, you're going to own a fraction of something that's worth more than your dollar, basically. That's the long-term idea. And you can use those fractions to pay for services and goods if you have a digital wallet. And as retail and other services start to pick up as a currency that they'll transact with. You don't think even with nine digits, we're not going to have like a Y2K issue in a hundred years or whatever. I guess we don't even worry about that. I, I don't know if you're remembering back to 2000, everybody's worried about setting their clocks and would things go awry? And there was this whole mm-hmm. thing that the world did with computers back then. So there is no worry about Bitcoin with that happening. We think it's so high, it's going to be almost impossible to get to, I guess, right? Well, I mean... The early adopters of good technologies usually win, right? So you look at people that picked up the first, you know, smartphones, they had a leading edge on people that were using analog phones. And and, and usually when you see people adopt technologies that are breaking edge, they usually are have an advantage over the rest of the people and, and they're working better, more efficiently, yada, yada, yada. Bitcoin is a technology that offers that efficiency and value. And I think people can convert their fiat currency gradually. They don't have to convert all of it. But I think this is not financial advice, but in the long term, I think fiat currency is going to be on the way out. We see it already happening. We have Places like Venezuela, Sri Lanka, Russia, the list is just massive. All the countries in Africa where they're just going bankrupt and their currency is worth nothing. Argentina has this insane inflation going on. Um, Turkey, their inflation is out of control. And that usually translates to a dollar being worth next to nothing. So the U.S. dollar is still one of the strongest fiat currencies you can hold, right? The euro started trading below the U.S. dollar like a month ago. That was crazy. And the euro used to be worth more, like a lot more. So you're starting to see fiat currencies crumbling in value internationally. And I think eventually you're going to see, obviously, fiat currency will still be used in the future, but you're going to have to use a lot more of that to pay for a service of good or good. Whereas if you own these cryptocurrencies that offer better efficiency in trading and better value in transactions, and you're not being charged a lot by a bank to hold them, you actually are holding them directly yourself, I think you're going to be better off in the future. And you're going to save money and you're going to own more value. Yeah. And I think for the neophyte listening out there, which I was before I watched your uh, your documentary, <laughs> is uh, blockchain. You know, we think of the internet. There's one internet right, that we all surf on, right? But blockchain, it is the uh, guardrails or the road for Bitcoin, but other currencies build their own blockchain systems, correct? 
think almost of Bitcoin as a form of currency or digital asset, but there are other currencies like Ethereum and a whole boatload of others. And some are smart contracts where a company may create a cryptocurrency to raise funding Mm -hmm. for a, a company or an initiative. And then the value is based on that company, so it's almost like a stock, I guess. Yeah. So there's all this range of digital of different digital currencies beyond Bitcoin. Yeah. It's almost like kind of what you look at today, where yes, you could have cash, you could have, or you could use money vehicles like a, a money market or a stock or an ETF or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a different digital form of the very various ways you can choose to invest in value that you think is going to resonate and bring value back to you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, to your point, Ethereum was started by Vichilik Buterin. And, you know, he looked at Bitcoin and he said, what if I created a a new sort of digital decentralized world computer that competed with the likes of Microsoft and Amazon and stuff like that? And it allowed developers to build on it their own applications that were blockchain-based and services. So really, Ethereum is like a new operating system that's in the blockchain technology space. There's tons of innovation. There's gaming that's being built on Ethereum. There's decentralized finance that all took off on Ethereum. People have heard that term before. That was predominantly being all run on Ethereum. You've got everything. You've got even media like Theta. The guys who started YouTube started a crypto video service called Theta. And the service, the blockchain application, runs on a token, a Theta token. And so you can buy those Theta tokens. And it's a decentralized sort of YouTube that they're launching. YouTube is very centralized. A lot of these content aggregation channels are very centralized and highly curated. And people don't realize, like even my documentaries, they they go to a distributor and then the distributor submits them to these platforms and the platforms say yes or no. So I'm lucky sometimes if I get accepted my documentaries. And we're at the behest of a centralized system for content to be accepted or not. And YouTube, they went through a whole, I think they called it the YouTube apocalypse or something. And they demonetized people's accounts and they completely deleted their accounts if they didn't think the content, if they thought it was harmful and doing no good. And that's not really what I would call freedom of speech. You're supposed to be living in a country where freedom of speech is protected. Yes, some of that freedom of speech is harmful if people kind of become weaponized and crazy from it, but it's still the premise of freedom of speech. And and so these content sites have become very centralized and therefore they're curated and they're, they don't allow you to really put up exactly what you want. So let me just add that, if you don't mind, or just taking a step further. So, for example, a a country like China that really uh, suppresses everything, right? Yep. Someone in China theoretically could, with Ethereum uh, or a smart contract, could post a bit of content that they would not be able to post or publish in the country, correct? Would that That, be something? That's right. It's a fully censored country. You know, they're very, very censored. And in fact... They don't want Bitcoin or any of these uh, cryptocurrencies being traded and used in their country because it could essentially overthrow their own central banking system. And they're afraid of that. They even created their own CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, which is run on blockchain. And they're close to launching that. And the thing about a CBDC is that it allows the government It's an open ledger. Remember, all these cryptocurrencies are basically modeled off of Bitcoin and how it's this open ledger and you can see all the transactions. You can see who owned it, who owns it now, where it's gone, how much of it has, all that type of thing, right? So think about a government launching a stable coin digital currency like China 
and what they can do in terms of monitoring their people and all the transactions that they conduct. That's kind of scary. But that's why I would not really want to use any central bank digital currency that gets launched by the Federal Reserve because they're actually developing that. In Canada, they're developing one. A lot of different countries see this as an opportunity to spy on their citizens even more. Well, it could also be a way to go around economic sanctions eventually, right? You could, if you were getting hit with economic sanctions with the current fiat money or whatever, it could be a workaround if there was a a type of system set up like that. Well, I mean, you look at what happened in Ukraine, Russia turned around the same week when all those sanctions hit and $600 billion of equity was being locked up and taken away from them by the Americans. Essentially, they said, okay, we now condone the use of Bitcoin and all their citizens were like hyper converting the ruble into Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies Uh. to save the value of all that money that they've saved all their lives, right? Or that they're working at. So it is a bit of a opportunity to escape sanctions. That is a true, truly decentralized currency. But if you centralize a currency, which is what these central bank digital currencies are that are being made by different countries, then you are centralizing it. So it's not decentralized like Bitcoin. It can't be ruled over or manipulated by an elite few. Whereas a central bank digital currency, they could sanction you and like literally change the code on you in a second with greater efficiency and stop you from accessing your funds even worse. What about like a smart contract? And educate me here. I apologize if I'm I'm not on top of it. But say a smart contract, a company has a uh, CIO to try to raise money for something and it's built on one blockchain and it's institutional, an institution creates it. Would that be centralized? Because it's it's created on a a blockchain by an institution or is that still decentralized? I kind of get confused on that sometimes. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of the argument. There's people out there like Michael Saylor or Max Kaiser who are OG Bitcoin maximalists. And a maximalist means they only believe in Bitcoin. They think everything else is rubbish in the crypto space. And what they will argue is that Ethereum is centralized because there's one guy at the top and a whole organization behind him that are manipulating and changing it and mutating it is what Michael Saylor called it recently, mutating the code to their liking, right? Bitcoin can't be mutated. It's been set in motion. It will run its programming and people will adopt it. So There is that worry that if it's being run by an organization, they can do something malevolent to it if they wanted, and that could change the course of it for the worse. But I think it's still a little bit too fear-mongery because when you look at a bank, what they do with your money, it's not fully transparent, right? You trust them. There's just like this inherent trust that they're going to do the right thing with your money. And then they go do something stupid and the bank shuts down and there goes all your money. With Ethereum and these other cryptocurrencies, they're built on that open ledger technology so you can track the transactions. If you go to a a website called Etherscan, you can put in a wallet address and you can see what kind of transactions are happening on the chain live. Same thing with Bitcoin. You go to blockchain.com slash explorer and you can see what's happening with all this Bitcoin. So I think it's it's something that's more transparent. I think if people look at the value that's being offered in that transparency, in the long run, it's better off than the fiat system that we currently use. My questions were going to be about talking about mining and staking, but you cover that in a deep dive in the documentary. So I'll just encourage people to find out how cryptocurrency is mined. And, and you actually did that. Uh, you gave an example of how you did you did it. Mm-hmm. And also what's staking in, which is something different. Yeah. So the, I, I, I encourage them to check that out. My question for you before we uh, talk about a few of the other documentaries that you've done is, you made this documentary, was it 2021? So it was released... Uh, 2022, 
we finished it at the beginning of 2022. We started shooting in 2018. So it was like a five-year process. I essentially got into this when the last big crypto crash had happened. In 2017, Bitcoin, one Bitcoin went up to the value of 19,000. And then it crashed hard in January of 2018 to around 6,000 per Bitcoin. Later that year, it went all the way down to 3,000. And we've never seen those lows ever since. It recovered. It kind of bounced around 9,000 for 2019. And then everything took off after that. Now we're hovering around, I think, 22,600. Yeah. Um, we said 60,000, right? Wasn't it 60,000 or something at one point a year ago, maybe? Or? Yeah. In 2021, at its greatest peak, it was uh, 64,000, uh, 68,000, I think. We were going to have these corrections in its history, but in the long run, if you stretch out the whole chart since it began, once it has these big crashes, it very seldom goes lower than the last crash. So look, Bitcoin could go down to like 14,000 from here, but I highly doubt it. And if it does, it'll be there for less than a day and then it'll shoot back up and we'll never see that price again. We're never going to see it again. What do you think about 2022? What's happened in the first, uh, we're into the eighth month now. So has anything surprised you or happened different that you didn't? I knew people like in December, I remember like on Facebook, people were saying, hey, I just put some money in into Bitcoin and it's, geez, it's up to $200, you know, or something. And then, I mean, a lot of people, like even in financial services, were talking about it and then it took a dive, right? So what is your thought about Bitcoin in, in terms of how it's done the first eight months? And were there any surprises or are there any new types of currencies, cryptocurrencies, or any new innovations after your documentary that you think are pretty cool that you're watching? Yeah, I think Bitcoin, in my opinion, is the king of all cryptocurrencies. It has first to market advantage. It's really well known internationally. And it has a lot of um, corporate and sovereign nation investment interest. So you look at countries like El Salvador, Russia, I think it was recently another country was adding to their reserves Bitcoin. And that's a big deal because that's basically saying, hey, we'd rather own this than American dollars or we'd like to have some American dollars, but some of this as well because we're concerned about the long-term value of this other asset. I think you're going to start to see a lot more investment from sovereign nations as we go forward, especially if we're looking at countries becoming more and more insolvent and going through these crises. They're going to, they're going to want to own something that's potentially going to be worth more in the future. And you look at corporate interests like just today, I don't know if you know about BlackRock BlackRock is a multinational investment management corporation. Some people consider it like this evil multi-conglomerate in terms of banking and investments, but they control about $10 trillion in assets globally. You know, these are guys that don't mess around with investment strategies. They just partnered with Coinbase today. And Coinbase is not just a Bitcoin investment play. Coinbase trades everything. They, they it's trade. an exchange, right? It's, it's an exchange, exchange. Yeah, a crypto okay. exchange. So they're the biggest in the United States and they trade Ethereum, they trade Algorand, Bitcoin, you know, all these different cryptocurrencies. You ask me what cryptocurrency I'm looking at that I think might be worth something, might be very innovative in the future. We talked about Ethereum. I think Ethereum is a really good crypto because it's uh, a new development layer. It's like a new operating system that all this application development is going to happen on. People called it the world computer back in the day. Vitulik Buterin's mom started a cryptocurrency called Metis. It's, it's modeled after sort of a Greek god. Her mom created this decentralized, uh, autonomous company creating 
uh, crypto. And basically what that means is, you know, you hear about people starting up their own websites and when they start up their own website, you know, you got to go to WordPress or you got to hire a developer or you can go to this company called Squarespace and Squarespace just has all these templates and you can whip together a, a quick business website with their skins and all that stuff, right? That's really good innovation. And what Metis does is it allows people to quickly whip together a blockchain company on the Ethereum network. And those blockchain companies are called DAX, Decentralized Autonomous Companies, and uh, or DAOs, sorry, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And they kind of have templates and they have all this technology that helps you develop quickly and easily, kind of like you're building a, a website on Squarespace. So, I mean, I think in five years from now, that type of technology will be kind of like an Amazon was in 2000, you know, rising out of the dot-com bubble ashes and eventually becoming a great innovator in terms of the internet and, and how people do business. Yeah, and your documentary has a disclosure, which I'll put at the beginning of this of this as well. About look, this is just we're talking; we're not giving financial advice here. But Medif is that is that with an M? Is that what you said? I'm just curious. What is it? Uh... Medis M, yeah, M E T I S. Okay, that's what I thought. All right, and yeah, so I think there's just so much development that's going to be happening in this crypto space. You know, at the end of the film, we we talked about the metaverse. I was going to ask about that. Is that on its own blockchain too, or will it be, or how's that going to, how's that going to act out? Well, the future is basically multi-chain. So there's going to be potentially Facebook is going to have their own cryptocurrency network that will run its own metaverse technology on. And actually, if people want to look into what that is, I think the secret sauce to that play is, is a company called Oasis, and their coin is called Rose, R-O-S-E, like the flower. Oasis is actually partnering with Facebook to do a lot of development for them in the crypto space on the meta platform. So that's going to be one to watch. And then you look at Ethereum, and that is a metaverse because that is a place where people are building businesses, gaming networks. Snoop Dogg launched his own sort of metaverse pad on a cryptocurrency sort of digital meta platform called Sand. And that happened right during the peak of 2021. Sand has gone down quite a bit since then. But essentially, Sand is like you can log into Sand and you can buy digital real estate online and you can run around this virtual world that kind of looks like Minecraft. Yeah. That's all block blocky looking and virtual. So gaming's like a huge thing. It was in your documentary. Like gaming's a huge thing in uh, this crypto universe as well. Y yeah, totally. I mean like the really cool thing about gaming right now, what we do when we play a game is we go to these content creator studios that make games like Electronic Arts or Ubisoft or, uh, you know, you name it. And they release their game. They spend a lot of money on development. So they go, okay, you pay 60 bucks and you can play the game. Or we're going to release the game for free. But if you want to upgrade and buy weapons and stuff like that, we'll, we'll get transactional dollars from you on this game, right? Mm -hmm. What's cool about the metaverse and blockchain gaming that's going on is that you buy a character, but then when you play that character, you accrue crypto coins from winning battles or oh. completing adventures in this gaming world. And when you win and you complete, when you accrue those coins, those coins are actually worth money. They're worth some kind of tradable value on these crypto networks. And you can essentially play the game make money, and then convert it back to fiat. Mm. So we looked at this case study in the Philippines in the, in the documentary where during COVID, people were being laid off. There was no one able to go to work. People were being locked in their homes. And they started playing this game called Axie Infinity, which is kind of like a Pokemon-style battle royale game online. 
mm-hmm. and you earn you play these characters called axes you fight each other and when you win battles you you earn this coin called SLP token and then that SLP token you can trade for money so people yeah. in the Philippines were essentially playing this game full time and putting food on their table and surviving through covid that's incredible God, that's insane. Yeah, you think 10 years ago, yelling at your kid, stop playing on that stupid computer game. Go out and exactly. get a job, you know? And now it's <laughs> and now it's like, you better play that game because I'm retiring. I'm retiring and I want some money. Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> we could go on this forever, but really, you you do a great job in your documentary. Like I said, I've watched it three times. and it was, It's just so well, it's, it's funny. Are you in any of the, there's a couple... You know, there's a couple of cool characters. There's a great song about Dogecoin oh, yeah. in there. There's some really clever stuff. Are you in it at all, or is that mostly just actors uh, required? There? Like, I usually like to stay on the other side of the camera, not on the lens side. Uh, I didn't know if you were one of those characters. But, um, okay. My right, voice yeah. can be heard when we talk about mining Shiba Inu coin. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not the prettiest dude on the planet, so I try to, try to like <laughs> – you could be if you buy a game and buy uh, an a, you avatar. Know, yeah, an there avatar you go. That's my my way around <laughs> that. So, I mean, look, I like to just be on the other side, and um, I I can be seen in some of my documentaries. I mean, the Unwanted Sasquatch, which was my very first sort of professionally developed documentary. You can see me there walking around at certain parts of the documentary and my voice and stuff. So I I put myself in a little bit here and there, but usually I like to focus on the actual people that are in this world that I'm studying. Yeah, I totally, Darcy, I made a documentary called Afraid of Nothing, which is based on what this, you know, it's on Tubi as well, as as well as I'm on Prime. Unlike you, I'm not good with distributors, so I didn't make any money off of it. But, uh, you know, who, who knows? If I make another one, I'll find out, you know, Uncork seems to be who you've used. Yeah, I'll hook you up. Yeah, but um, you, you have a lot of great films. I want to just take a quick pivot to that. I'm going to name a couple, and then if there's any that I missed that you really, if there's one documentary that you worked on where there is something that like really changed your mindset or your belief system, would love to hear it. But the ones that I've I've seen recently, Being Taken, which is about UFO abductions. Uh, if you don't mind doing a quick kind of blurb about what that is, so someone might check it out. Mm-hmm. Sure. The tagline for that film is the definitive documentary on abduction. And what we're trying to say is we're chronicling the whole history of how abductions have been reported. There's been paleo abductions, which are technically prehistoric abductions that have been reported. And then there's the recent sort of modern abductions that we've heard about in the media from cases like Betty and Barney Hill, Travis Walton, Kathleen Marden, like people that um, tend to be taken and then experimented or sometimes genetic material removed from, and then they're put back. As above, so below. I I feel like we live in kind of a predatory ecosystem on this planet, and I I think the universe mirrors some of that, that behavior as you look out into the stars. You will get some of that sort of experimentation. Like we go and take um, an animal out of its habitat, research it, put it back sometimes. We've domesticated animals. All this stuff is essentially experimentation. And if we're a technically lower evolved life form or lesser advanced technologically uh, life form, because the singularity hasn't quite yet happened, we might be an interesting study to some of our cosmic neighbors. So I hope that kind of covers that. That's a good segue. That's great. That's a good segue to the other film you made called, so Being Taken is about abductions, right? Yeah. Humanoids, the real close encounters of the third kind. That's kind of about hybrid, a hybrid population, correct? No, it's more about Jaime Maussan's profiling of alien interactions in, in, a, in like Latin America. Okay. I actually made that one as kind of a skeptics documentary because, look, not everything that's out there in this phenomenon is real. Some of it is fake, and you're going to have some 
stuff that needs to be discussed as being fake so that people don't just completely have their brains fall out of their heads and they lose their minds. So I wanted to release this documentary to discuss some of these cases that Jaime believes to be real, authentic alien contact cases or experiencer cases. And I don't discount that there have been real contact cases. I mean, look, James Fox is about to release Point of Contact, his new documentary about the Varginha um, Brazilian UFO crash and alien contact case that happened in the 90s. And I think that's very credible because it had multiple sources. The military was involved. The news was involved. All kinds of civilians were witness to the crash, the UFO, and alien creatures and bodies and so on and so forth. So when you have that many points of reference, it's more so a true case. But with the Humanoids documentary, it's more presented as a tongue-in-cheek kind of comedy on some cases that you really just can't prove are real. They're just anecdotal, you know, singular source information cases. What about the underground based on Phil Schneider? He's kind of a, a, a person people are two sides of a coin on. They don't know whether to believe it or not. Yeah. What was that one? Was that more of the same like humanoids or, or did you believe that there could be some truth to Phil Schneider? I believed that there was some truth to Phil Schneider. And when I first started making documentaries is when I created the Phil Schneider documentary. I actually released that for free in 2012 on YouTube. And I was a believer, you know, I totally thought, hey, maybe this, this guy, well, the circumstances around his death were very strange to me. And the way that his wife, his late wife, they were separated by the time he passed away, the way she described how the coroner and the police just made it an open shut case, then they reported it as a death of natural causes, like there were all kinds of strange things around his death, which still leave me kind of scratching my head. Is this negligence, like gross negligence, or was it a real suicide or was he suicided? Was he killed because he was starting to get a little too powerful, a little bit too much notoriety, and he was talking about things that certain folks didn't want to have out there in the public. I was really interested in the underground base story, the fact that if there are things like the TR-3B UFO or the ARV, the um, alien reproduction vehicles that are out there, or actual alien vehicles that have been recovered from crash sites or possible ancient recoveries from, from sort of archaeological finds, where are those being housed? It's very possible that those are being housed in underground bases. And people have been talking that, about that for years. Phil Schneider became famous because he talked about his underground base battle that he had with aliens that maimed him and the government didn't want anybody to know. And he killed two, right? He actually killed two. He said that they can be killed. Yeah, he stated that. I don't think he actually did fight with aliens. I think he wanted to sensationalize and make a sort of Hollywood blockbuster idea. Let's say mixing Rambo and Moonraker's 007 into one character yeah. and and bringing audiences' attention to underground bases. Well, Bitcoin's supposed to have underground bases, right? I mean, I, I don't know if you've heard about it. I, I've seen in other documentaries where there's supposed to be underground bases where they have like seven backup systems and oh, all this stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Those are cold storage offline. Yes, yeah, cold systems. storage offline, yeah. Yeah, and essentially it's just vaults, right? Yeah. You go and look at – there's seed vaults, which are really well known too, and those are meant for the preservation of different vegetation species if – we were to befall some kind of nuclear crisis or some apocalypse in the future, yeah. which is very possible at this point. So underground things in terms of bases and vaults and storage are very, very possible. And in that documentary, I just wanted to, I wanted to pursue that idea and push the, the idea of 
you know, how far can we go with this? Yeah. Are there aliens living here underground? Are we alone in the universe? Is the government working on top secret clandestine technological experiments underground? All those questions are kind of had. And lastly, is there one that we didn't mention that you did that really you had a, it, it's memorable for you for how it changed your mindset or something happened or you saw something, uh, you had an experience or something? Is there any one of the documentaries you've done that stands out? Yeah, I mean, I just released Secret Space UFOs. Yep. There's two documentaries kind of in that series. One of them is on, it's called In the Beginning, Secret Space UFOs in the Beginning, and it kind of covers a little bit of the, the NASA cover-up stuff in terms of UFOs and how they created laws that could classify things within the military and the research apparatuses that surround the military, which include NASA. So I've, I've been making that stuff and I've been partnering with this guy named Luna Cognita. His real name is Kerry Martinuk. He's another Canadian. I'm Canadian. He's really fascinating brilliant guy who essentially was a space research nerd that just did an amazing amount of download of information from the NASA archives. And he showed in the transcripts from the missions and from the, uh, you know, photo and film records from the missions that there were UFOs and some kind of anomalous interactions happening in space that NASA had a hard time covering up. And a lot of that stuff was declassified because initially all of the stuff that happened in space was classified. And that's the thing that people don't understand. Space and anything that is a military theater is first and foremost classified because they want to own that data. They want to protect it. In the end, probably to protect the nation. But when it comes to the UFO subject or are we alone in the universe, they're also keeping that from us, which I think is not fair. Yeah, That ends up being classified away from us too, because some of that stuff in the earlier days probably had some implications that could destabilize the economy and the global psyche, the psychological, social psyche of social patterns and, and how we operate ourselves day to day, I think. Yeah, well, you've tackled two big mysteries, you know, life out, out beyond Earth and the monetary system, <laughs> the world monetary system. So that's quite a big, big chunk that you've bitten off. Darcy, is there a website beyond seeing, again, they could see all of your stuff. They could look you up on IMDb, Darcy Weir, D-A-R-C-Y-W-E-I-R on imdb.com. They could see all the films that you've made and then search for those on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. 2B TV is an app. It's a great app. I've seen a lot of your stuff on that. Google Play, Voodoo, iTunes. Any place else where they can see what you're doing and follow what, what's going on with you? Yeah. I mean, they could just go to my website is occultjourneys.com. And, you know, I've got film posters up there, trailers. They can click on the poster. It goes right through to a link to watch it usually free. If it's on Tubi TV, it's free. And yeah, some of my social media is there. You know, you got, I got like a TikTok, Instagram and Facebook and it's just, my name is Darcy Weary. You can find me on all those platforms. Excellent. Is there another film that you, you do so much? I imagine you have a more than one film probably in the queue, but is there something else that you want to tease that you're working on next? Yeah, there's one that should be released in a month or so, I think. It's going to be called NASA's First Missions, and we're going to really do a deep dive on the initial missions that predated the Apollo moon mission. That that one's probably the next one in the queue. Yeah, you know what you should do, just to throw an idea, since you're so good at this? You should do like these mysterious deaths, like Tesla or Phil Schneider or whatever. That would be a great documentary about these people that you know, we're on the brink of something and then they died some type of weird way too premature. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The free energy developers. That's a big one. I'm yeah. scared to cover that. Actually. Yeah. One of the you. questions I didn't ask you, Darcy, which I won't ask, but was, did anybody oh, ever threaten you? <laughs> I was going to ask one of the questions was, have you ever been threatened? Cause a lot of the stuff you cover is a little controversial sometimes, or, or have you ever been threatened or anything that, you know, by anything that you're working on? Um, well, I've had some strange sort of stuff. Well, 
the the major sort of threats and annoying things that have happened have usually been from people on social media that feel that I'm some kind of competition to them in terms of what I'm producing and my content. Uh, okay. So that's like that's like YouTubers and, and weird guys like that that end up sending their troll armies after me. Yeah. I experienced that with my last film. But strangely enough, over the past like two years, I've been getting phone calls that, you know, hang up after a minute of me saying hello, hello and stuff like that. Just weird stuff. I don't know if somebody's added my number to a robot dialer. That's probably more likely, but I haven't been threatened. I think the major thing is always what can you prove? It's mostly about what you can prove not what you know, yeah. right? And if you can prove something beyond a shadow of doubt, you're probably not going to get a threat. You're just going to get whacked yeah. if it's dangerous enough, you know? That's why I'm scared to cover something like a free energy yep. scientist dying documentary. That's why I asked you to do because, it instead of me. I know. It's like kind of insane. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it would be sensational and incredibly entertaining and, and incredibly enlightening, but my shelf life would be shortened for sure. Anybody would. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing subject. There are some things just taboo that a lot of people don't don't go down that rabbit hole. So yeah. um yeah. Darcy, thank you so much. I know we've gone past the time, but it's been amazing. Excellent. You're just a tr- tremendously talented and interesting guy and a smart guy. It's, it's been great talking to you. So I appreciate your time tonight. Uh, thanks, Bob. It's been great talking with you too, man. listening to the afraid of nothing podcast please subscribe and like us on facebook until next time stay scared hey you're still here great then why not listen to another episode visit afraid of nothing podcast.com to peruse all the shows that's afraid of nothing podcast.com and while you're there Click the coffee cup icon to buy me a coffee and leave a review. I'll give you a shout out in an upcoming episode and the world will know how swell you are.